Our reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 20, if you would like to turn there. So again, Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 20. Listen now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. As we prepare to sit beneath the teaching of God's word, let's go to God himself and ask for his help. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confessed just a moment ago in that song that our hearts are prone to leave the God we love. Um, We do recognize that this morning and pray that you would come and meet with us in your grace, that you would remind us all this morning that though we are far more broken than we could ever really imagine, that we are also, because of what you have done for us in Jesus, we are also at the same time far more loved and far more secure and accepted and approved of than we could have ever dared to dream possible. And so, Father, as we come beneath your word, guide us by your spirit, we pray, to the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You may be seated. And at this time, the children, ages three to first grade, you're dismissed to children's church. So if you make your way to those back doors, you'll be taken to your children's church class. Well, on Sunday mornings, uh, we've been going through the book of Genesis, and we are right 
in the middle of taking uh, three sermons on Sunday mornings to talk about Genesis chapter 3. Hence my very original and creative title for the sermon, uh, Paradise Lost Part 2. Um, I don't have to think of a creative one for next week either. Um, but three weeks, three weeks we're spending talking about why the world and life is the way it is. Um, we spent three sermons in Genesis chapter 2 talking about what this world was, was made for. But in Genesis chapter 3, we're asking this question, what's gone wrong with the world and what's wrong with us? Um, and that, it might feel like a bit much for us to consider this for three weeks, three weeks of somewhat bad news, right, um, of mankind's fallen to sin. But I, I want you to think about something as we begin this morning. I don't know if any of you are into rock climbing. I'm not, but I've read a little bit about it. Um, but there was a famous rock climber uh, a couple of decades ago, and his name is Royal Robbins. And he once wrote an article for Sports Illustrated, and I, I just want to read you a brief quote from that article. He, he write, wrote this, If we are keenly alert and aware of the rock and what we're doing on it, if we are honest with ourselves, if we avoid committing ourselves beyond what we know is safe, then we climb safely. And then he says this, for climbing is an exercise in reality. He who sees it is clearly, is clearly on safe ground regardless of his experience or his skill. But he who sees reality as he would like it to be may have his illusion rudely stripped from his eyes when the ground comes up fast. Climbing is an exercise in reality. And you see what he's saying? It's not so much, even in rock climbing, it's not so much your physical strength or even your mastering of the techniques of climbing that matters the most and keeps you safe. It is intentionally living inside of reality that keeps you safe. A rigorous commitment to and honesty about reality. See, paying, paying attention to the story of Genesis chapter 3, it is an exercise in reality. It is telling us why life is the way it is for us. Author Stephen Gar Garber, he wrote in an article, what is it about stories? Why are we as human beings so drawn to good ones and so disappointed with bad ones? And he writes, one of my first memories as a young boy was putting my pencil and paper aside during a sermon whenever the pastor would begin to tell a story. Something changed he writes, in the very air of the sanctuary, right? There's something about us as human beings that resonates deeply with story. We live our lives in story. It's how we understand our own lives, individually and corporately. The way stories fit with the contour of our lives and the fabric of our lives, stories engage us at the very deepest levels because we are built for stories. But here's the thing, and this is what Garber's getting at. All stories are not equal. There are good ones that we are drawn to, 
And there are bad ones we're disappointed with. The famous Southern writer, I'm almost done with all these quotes. I got one more little one. Um, famous Southern writer Walker Percy, uh, he wrote, bad books or bad stories lie. Always lie, he says. And the question is, what is the lie that makes for bad stories or bad books? He wrote this, bad books always lie, and they lie most of all about our human condition. In other words, all good stories are exercises in reality. They are telling us the truth about the world and about ourselves. Good stories don't flatter us with illusions that wind up shattering us. They don't flatter us with illusions of seeing reality the way we would like it to be. Good stories actually fit the contour of our lives. They fit with this sense that we all have that we are made for so much more, but also and at the same time, the sense that we all experience such great loss in this life. Something's missing, right? They fit with the experience of life's hardness and even of our own hearts and the pain of life and the realization that we all have that this is not the way life was meant to be. They fit with our deep longing for, for a grace and a love that could come into the world and totally redeem the world and us and put it back the way it was meant to be. See, paying very close attention to the story of Genesis chapter 3, it is an exercise in reality because it is telling us the truth of our human condition and why life is the way it is. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to practice a rigorous commitment to and honesty about reality this morning and in this story. And there are three things that I want to talk, talk with you about this morning. I want us to talk about humanity's hiding first, and then humanity's pain, and then finally God's promise. Okay, so first, let's talk about humanity's hiding. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote that there is no more up-to-date book in the world than this old, old book that we call the Bible. He writes, it is concerned about all of us just as we are and where we are. In other words, reality. And he says, in addition to being history, it is an actual account of what every one of us does. As soon as Adam and Eve bit into the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it soured in their mouths immediately, right? And immediately, they felt a desperate need to hide and cover up. It's what they did, but it is also an actual account of what all of us does, what all humanity does. Your story and mine are stories of continually hiding and covering up. The old man Matchbox 20, I know I'm dating myself there, but they sang it well when they said, everyone, everyone hides shades of shame, and we don't know how to get it back to good. Humanity's hiding, you see, dominates the first part of the story that we read in verses 7 through 13, just as it dominates the stories of our lives. See, Genesis chapter 2, it ended on such a gloriously high note, right? The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. 
that verse at the end of chapter 2, it is telling us what paradise really is, and deep down we know it. Because paradise, paradise is the freedom of being entirely known and totally loved, of being fully seen and completely accepted. Knowing and known, seeing and being seen without any shame, that would be paradise for us. But in Genesis chapter 3, mankind realized their nakedness, which in the Bible is always a picture of shame. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Verse 10, I was afraid, Adam said, because I was naked and hid myself. That's Adam and Eve's story, and that's your story and mine as well. We're all hiding our shades of shame. Psychiatrist Kurt Thompson wrote, To be human is to be infected with this phenomenon we call shame. We're all born into this world with a deep sense of shame and condemnation resting on our lives as a result of what happened in this garden. It's this, you know what shame, shame is this, it is this painful awareness, this feeling, this sense that we have, right, deep within us that we're not enough. Not just that we've done bad things, but that we're bad. Shame is this sense that there is something deeply wrong with us. This fear that we'll be found out one day to be the frauds we really are. That's shame. Shame is this feeling that we do not have what it takes. Now listen, our experiences that we have with our families, um, our, our our past experiences that we have, the traumas that we may have experienced, those things can certainly deepen our shame. They can speed it up. And they can magnify it in our lives. But Genesis chapter 3 is saying, that's not the source of your shame. The source of our shame is something else. The Bible says the villain, right, the source of our shame is our sin and our brokenness. And it's left humanity with a deep need to run and hide and cover up. Hiding from ourselves, right? A deep, fearful, and painful insecurity and anxiety about who we are. Once the fall came, once sin came into the world, it has fractured our identities and broken them. God came walking in the garden in verse 8 we read. And he was asking all of these leading questions. Where are you? What have you done? Right? He came as a gentle father and as a wonderful counselor leading mankind to come out of his hiding and to admit their sin, right? But we don't admit. We blame the woman, the serpent. We deflect, right? We hide, we accuse, we defend ourselves. We don't just hide from ourselves. We hide from, we hide from others. We cover ourselves with fig leaves, verse 7. And we try to keep others at a distance. We're stiff-arming all of those relationships in our lives, keeping them away from the truth about us 
Because we feel this desperate need to control what others feel, what others see and know about us. How far will we really let them in? We can't bear to be seen unprotected as we really are. But we don't just hide from ourselves and we don't just hide from others, we hide from God, right? A deep sense of inadequacy and inferiority is running through our lives. It's the theme of our lives. This theme of not being enough, it sends us running to the trees in verse 8 to avoid being seen and known. This deep and fearful anxiety that we're not enough, that we're just completely lacking in life. It sends us to hide. Humanity's hiding, you know, it is so deep, it is so complex, and it is so sophisticated. It shows up all over our lives. From the insecurity that keeps you silent and isolates you from others because we can't stand for anyone to have an unmediated knowledge of us, to anger and bitterness that's expressed at others or even at God, right, himself, that really its, its aim is to deflect, to deflect a gaze into who we really are, right, from the constant mocking and ridicule that masquerades as a sense of humor, right, but is used to cover up our own sense of inadequacy, to a workaholism that is driven by a fear that you'll be found out to be a fraud, And you can call it ambition, and you can call it drive, but Genesis chapter 3 says it's really hiding. From an obsession with our physical appearances and how we look to shaming and belittling others, or even groups of others, right? Because it diverts from our own sense of shame that we feel and makes us feel better than others, right? It's all hiding from a secret obsession you might have with pornography, or substance abuse that momentarily diverts and hides our painful self-awareness to a need that you have to win every argument and be right about everything or be religious enough, it is all camouflage, sophisticated, deep, and complex hiding. It's all a bunch of modern fig leaves. The paradise we long for of being entirely known and fully loved, of being completely seen and entirely accepted, that's been lost. Paradise is lost, and we're hiding to cover our shame. Do you know what the problem with fig leaves are? They're drafty, for one thing, right? (laughs) They They make it for a terrible covering, um, I actually did a little research on fig trees and leaves, and fig trees are so fragile that if you had a fig tree in a pot in your house and you moved it from one side of the room to another side of the room, the leaves would wilt and fall off. So what do you think happens to fig leaves when you rip them off a tree and try to sew them together? <laughs> They're eventually going to wilt and fall off, Right? Listen, recovery groups talk about how we're only as sick as the secrets we keep. And our shame, your shame and mine, it is ruthlessly committed to keeping us sick 
and in hiding and covering up. In fact, you could tell yourself this morning, I just need to stop being ashamed. I would say to you, good luck with that. (laughs) Because that will only end up reinforcing your shame. Because then you'll feel shame about being ashamed. It's all temporary and so drafty. It's always wilting. See, you can mock others and you can ridicule others and you can try to control others in an effort to hide, but eventually you will be exposed. And those you mock and ridicule and try to control, eventually they will want nothing to do with you. You can try to prove that you're a hard worker and therefore I have value and I'm important, but eventually people are going to remove themselves from you Because you are so obsessed with performance and perfection. You shame others to divert from your own sense of shame, and eventually no one's going to want to be near you. They're drafty. They're constantly wilting. A temporary cover-up for our problem. Paradise was lost, and humanity was hiding. It's not just Adam and Eve's hiding. It's our hiding. But even our hiding plagues us up right? It's never sufficient to cover us all the way. Okay, second, let's talk about humanity's pain. I mean, this is getting worse, right, for a moment. This exercise in reality is very difficult. Um, Psychologist Dan Allender wrote that it's in human nature, it's in human nature to prefer the illusion because we have a deep need to be buffered from reality, And I want to encourage you, even though the plot thickens here with our pain, to stay with it. To see how the truth of our human condition really forms the backdrop for the good story that we're trying to get ourselves to see. So here we are. Second, we're talking about humanity's pain. I'll try to be brief here, but when God God relays the consequences of mankind's sin, he speaks of pain. Right To the woman, verse 16... I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now, sure, there are physical labor pains, but this goes much further than that and is encompassing much more. The pain of raising a broken child in a broken world. God also tells the woman that she will have this desire for her husband, but he will rule over her. It's in verse 16 as well. And I can't give a full defense of this right now, but this is talking about the pain of disordered and broken relationships, even of marriage, that was meant for man's good. It's saying she'll have a desire to rule and control her husband, but this rule of his, it will not be gentle with her or sacrificial. It will be harsh and hard. Now, to the man... He uses the same Hebrew word. In verse 17, God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, and so on. Work that was meant to be joyful and fulfilling and satisfying. But he's saying now it it is going to be deeply unsatisfying and hard and brutal. And it's not just that it will be physical. It will involve physical pain in his work. It will be deeply disappointing Right? It, it will be, your work will be fraught with failures and emptiness. And where will it lead Adam? Just to more pain. Right? He'll quite literally, this verse is saying, work himself into the ground. 
right? It ends in painful death. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Does this fit with reality? Um, Life that promises so much joy in our marital relationships, in our vocations, or in the raising of children, right? Promises a lot of joy. But some of you in this room are married, and you have jobs, and you have children, right? And if we're rigorously honest with ourselves, we would have to say that those things that promise us such joy regularly turn around and mock us in our pain, right? From the recent college graduate who thinks, I landed the job I really wanted. I can't wait to get out of school and start this job and get paid to do this stuff. So why is it that the single most depressing year of adult life is the first year out of college, when they have the job they want and the money they want? A few of us, and by this you need to hear all of us, um, thought or are thinking, I'm getting married because he or she makes me happy. And yet, it's inside marriage (laughs) that we experience New depths of pain and hurt we never imagined we could feel before that. Same with kids. You know, kids, oh, kids, they're wonderful, they're joy. Um, But parent a broken child in a broken world, and you will realize something. As a parent, you can only ever be as happy as your most miserable child. Now, go, now, now would be a good time for us to go read Ecclesiastes, right? Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, he writes. All of them is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Humanity's pain, a chasing after the wind. I mean, what does that mean? It means we're chasing joy in everything possible around us, in everything that life life seems to be able to offer us. But every time we think we've got a hold of it, every time we think we've been able to grasp it, it just slips through our fingers and you'd have better luck grabbing hold of the wind. It all turns around on us and mocks us in our pain. The famous philosopher and theologian and mathematician Blaise Pascal He wrote that if not for our diversions, we would be bored and boredom would drive us to seek some more solid means of escape. But diversion passes our time and brings us imperceptibly to our deaths. He's saying diversions, you know what they do? They distract you from reality. And if we avoid reality, eventually our illusions will be shattered by death itself. Our diversions in life, they numb us and they anesthetize us from facing who we really are and who God really is. I mean, Pascal, he was writing in the 1600s, and he was talking about diversions, which, by the way, is 200 years before they invented the electric light. I mean, if, if he was wrestling with diversions, how much more are we? 
right, with our SEC football games and our vacations and binging on the next TV series on Netflix or Hulu or social media posts on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and whatever else there is. I'm sure there are other things. Um, Couldn't it be possible? Couldn't it be possible that we're often desperately trying to divert ourselves from reality? But what about this? What if pain, what if pain wasn't just a consequence of sin? But what if pain was also God's mercy to a dying and broken world? C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, pain is evil that is impossible to ignore. It insists on being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences. But he shouts in our pain. Right? Pain, Lewis wrote, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And here's what I'm getting at. In God's hands, pain isn't just pain. Pain is his mercy to his broken creation. Laura Story has this great verse in her song, Blessings, which I will proceed to read and not sing um, for you. What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world cannot satisfy? What if trials of this life, the pain, the storms, the hardest nights are your mercies in disguise. The pain that resulted from our sin, it's more than just a consequence. It's also God's mercy. He whispers in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain to wake us up to reality, to seek some more solid means of escape in this life. Normally, we don't even recognize Jesus's presence. Until the storm rages and the waves are just crashing upon our little boats. That's when we send for Jesus. That's when we yell out to him to wake him up from his slumber. Right? I absolutely believe in foxhole conversions, in deathbed confessions, in conversions, and conversions that began in the rooms of recovery groups. Because, yes, of course. Pain is God's megaphone, right? It's his mercy in disguise shouting at us and waking us up to reality. Okay, third, God's promise. Humanity's hiding, humanity's pain, but a part of this same story is God's promise, and it's embedded right in the middle of all these verses we read In verse 15, God told the man and the woman about the pain they would experience. But did you notice in all those verses, he did not curse humanity. He cursed the ground. He cursed the serpent. But he didn't curse mankind. There was hope for redemption. And it's because God came running into the garden. And he came running with grace and with love and with a promise to redeem as soon as mankind fell. And that promise of his was to triumph over death and sin, to vanquish mankind's enemy 
and to crush the head of the serpent. Years ago, I was living in uh, Mississippi, and I heard this this great story. It's probably been 20 years that I heard this story about a little boy that grew up in Pearl, Mississippi. Uh, Pearl, if you don't know, is this rural community just outside of Jackson, Mississippi. And um, as a little boy, he grew up on the family farm. And as a young child, he had the freedom to roam the property and do and play with his friends and do all kinds of things he wanted. But his parents had one rule for him. And that one rule was that he stay away from the back of the property. Don't go there. And his parents knew what was best for him. Because at the back of the property was a sewage pond. Don't go near the back of the property and that pond. But, of course, he's a boy. Um, So one day with his friends, he made it all the way to the back of the property. And they found that sewage pond. And growing on the bank of that filthy smelly sewage pond was this tree. And hanging from the tree was a vine. And soon enough, it started out, I dare you to swing out on that vine across that pond. No, I double dog dare you. I triple dog dare you. And as we all know from the Christmas story, you can't back down from a triple dog dare. And so he took the dare And he grabbed the vine, and he backed up, and he got a running start, and he swung gloriously over that sewage pond until he got to his peak, (laughs) and the vine broke, and he found himself submerged in the sewage pond. All his friends got on their bikes (laughs) and went home, (laughs) ran away from him. And he crawled out of that bank, and he was stinky, and he was smelly, and he was crying, and he was afraid. He was afraid. Because the one place he needed to go was home, to get cleaned up, right? But that meant going back to those parents, whose one rule he had broken. And so it was a long way home for him dreading every minute of that walk, and the eventual telling his mom of what he had done. From the kitchen window over the sink, the boy's mother saw him coming from far away, and she said, immediately, I knew where he had been and what had happened. Head down, crying and covered in filth, She knew what had happened, and the back screen door of their house flew open and crashed behind her as she ran to her son, and of course, he braced himself for impact, (laughs) right? But instead, and to his shock, he was embraced in the biggest hug he had ever, ever had in his life, even in all his filth, and she was crying too not just him. And she took her clean white apron and began to wipe him off over and over again, saying to him, I love you so much. I love you so much. What if, what if that story was just a hint and just a shadow of a greater story of a God who weeps over your self-destructive sin in your life and mine. 
and yet runs to embrace you in his love despite all our filthiness and all our foolishness and all our hiding. One rule, don't eat the fruit of the tree. And they broke that one rule. They ate the fruit, and God came running, and he came running with a promise. Verse 15, speaking to the serpent, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall strike his heel. A promise on one level that from that point on, human history would be divided into two family lines. And we're going to see it more clearly in a couple of weeks when we talk about Cain and Abel. But there were those who would return home to God and find his grace and those who would remain his enemies. But the promise went much deeper than that. And it got specific on another level. It was a promise that God would send one of Eve's descendants, right? A he, third person, masculine, singular, to crush the head of the serpent, to deliver the final victorious blow to sin and death. You know, many of you are familiar, I I know, with the patriarchal cultural context that the Bible was written in. And that's why when you read through your Bible, you find all these genealogies that are always traced through the men. But here in chapter 3, the first genealogy is traced through Eve, through a woman. Now listen to me. There is only one person in history who was only the offspring of a woman. Isaiah said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus, God's own Son, His promised deliverer. You know, it takes the rest of the Bible to flesh out this promise. But there it was, as soon as sin entered the world. And when Jesus did come, you know what happened? Humanity took Him, and they stripped Him of His clothes, and they nailed Him to a cross and crucified him. And he was publicly shamed for the whole world to see. Why? He was stripped naked, and he was exposed, and he was crucified for you to take our place so that we could be covered with his righteousness. We're going to see more about this next week. I can hardly wait. But a perfect and spotless righteousness that would cover our shame entirely a righteousness that would never be drafty and never wilt and never go away. He came and did that to open up again the doors of paradise so that we could be assured that he sees us as we are and he loves us as we are, entirely known and fully loved, completely seen and fully accepted. All Adam and Eve could do at this time was simply to grasp the bare bones of this promise. And listen, we're going to end it here. And when, it did, when they did, it changed them. In verse 20, we're told that man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. This was more than intellectual belief, 
right? His belief made a difference in his life. He acted on his belief and named his wife Eve because he believed that from her would come God's promise to deliver. This is the story that we are all longing for. It's a story of grace and love that could heal us and put the world back together the way it was meant to be. Believe it and it will begin changing you. Because you'll start, if you believe it, you'll start finding a freedom to be open and transparent with others. Believe it and you'll begin to be honest about yourself and about who you are. Believe it and you'll begin to grow to trust the goodness and the grace of God in your life. The lie that God, the lie that God was not good, it came into the world through a tree and through a second tree, Jesus cross. God came to begin the work of rooting that lie out of the depths of our hearts. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your good word to us, for this good story that the King of Kings has come to his creation to redeem his creation. Father, help us to admit all the ways we have sought to hide from our brokenness, to hide from ourselves, from others, and from you. Father, would the pain of our broken reality wake us up to reality itself, to a God who loves his broken creation, who has come into this world to redeem his broken creation through his Son. Father, begin the work now in our hearts of putting us and the world back together again. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.